and to, and to pass on a little bit of professional development to these uh, emerging writers. Uh, and an anthology will appear with all of the submitted works. So uh, stay connected to Penn for information about that. We don't have any dates and uh, so forth. So the readers are gonna read for about five minutes max each. We have to be mindful of the time. Uh, so all I ask is that you enjoy, you support their courage, um, you know, give them the love and encouragement they need because a lot of this, I worked with about uh, 20 students total uh, and the range of stories and, and all of the emotions and experiences captured within them were sometimes very difficult. Uh, but they have something to teach about humanity uh, and I'll let the work speak for itself. So I'm just gonna start uh, with who I know is here. And I know some, did any writers come in since I checked in with the first group? You're here, what's your name? Barita. hello Barita. and what's your name? Annette, of course. Sorry, it's a little dark in here. <laughs> These glasses are old. So uh, good, we got, a nice, we got a nice group here. So we're gonna call up uh, Erica Apupalo, who is going to share some words with you, okay? everyone. Uh, my, my name is Erica and the title of my piece is The Guards. The guard carries a torch. I'm cage. The cage is around me. A guard stands in front of me. The guard's ominous face stares into my brown eyes. He has soft skin, fresh shaven. My face is ashy and cold. I see him when I think the time is up. I see him looking at me. He stares and does not stray away. He looks and looks while I try to hide and hide. He comes into one of my dreams. His body drags like a dark shadow. I look up at him. Our eyes enter a space of solitude. We are both alone in worlds that were not for us to touch. He held my past, my belonging, and my identity in his fingertips. I held his power in the back of my mind. We held each other as the government pried our hearts open in order to swallow us whole. Our bodies were disposable. Our hearts were not. And that is where we struggle. Our struggle is told through the news. His face like the agitator. His face bold and stern. I am defenseless. I am the immigrant who is good and kind, but wrong. In the eyes of government, my existence in this country is wrong. My existence in the space that our government wants me in is all wrong. My government is not one that looks at me and says, you belong. The faces of my government are treacherously looking for my flaws. They ransack my heart, my mind, and my fingertips, my blood, my birthright. When I entered my adjustment of status interview, I brought my birth certificate, a paper which explained that my father was my father. This was not enough. The certificate had to be stamped by my home country. It had to be sent back within a month. 
My heartbeat quickened. I had answered all the questions, and this stopped the process. But the lawyer quickly said, you will get everything on time. And a few months later, disappeared from her office as she no longer worked there. I was left with the agony of who to ask for help to find another lawyer, and yet there was no time. I was left without a warning. My green card did not arrive. A few years back, I got advance parole to return to my home country, Ecuador. I received permission with conditions to return to the place that my heart belonged to. It was in coming back that everything fell apart and broke loose. The remembrance excavated felt like an avalanche crashing into me, heavy. I carried my own tragedy in my mind and needed psychiatric help. I was interned at a hospital for two weeks and struggled to face the diagnosis. The repercussions of the diagnosis strangled me. The loss of home has yet to stop. I have yet to stop wondering about my immigration status. The guard continues to stand in front of me. A wall stands in front of me. Can I go for what I want in love and my career? Will my lack of citizen status shatter me? I want to hide my loneliness and panic and bury them within the entrails of the heart. I want to lose myself and become another. I become she. She becomes another, another heart, another soul. She moves through the world with ideas in her head. She wavers through windy roads of existence as the world revolves in space. She slowly learns to trust. She slowly learns to break the pieces inside the wound. The wound becomes visible, visibility in her blood. She tears a hole in her ear. Her ears lost blood when she was two years of age, and her grandmother passed the needle through them to pierce her lobes. When she wore new earrings, the irritation caused them to bleed again at 22. Blood seeped into the dreams that haunted her at night. She is impatient with the love that she wants and needs. The ravenous need to want another, but scared of all the consequences. The consequences of revealing the self inside, the self that caresses once insides, the insides that crawl, each drawn into a pointed and pierced sword. Yet still, the soft, fresh-shaven guard stands in front of her. The guard, part two. The guard looked at her as if staring into death. He held the back of others. He scratched, tore, and broke their bones. He caught souls and ate them in small bites. 40K a year, he lived in a small house. He smelled the bacon in the mornings with his striped undershirt underneath and uniform on top. Darkness enveloped him. Underneath, he also held a torn heart from a childhood love. He liked listening to music out loud and liked to whistle as he brought immigrants to their jail cells. He washed his hands with lavender soap. He smelled of liquor and aftershave. He always had a napkin in his back pocket, always passing it onto the woman howling. He laughed, he cackled. He woke up soundly in her dream. Her dream became a looking glass. She peered through him like the vaporous body of a ghost. She saw him and he surrounded her. He pried her heart open, 
then her throat, then her veins, looking for what did not belong. He took her stomach and let the blood drip out, fall into an empty hole. His laughter trapped her body with his cackles. The louder he laughed, the faster the blood drip, drip, drip. And as his heart was about to stop beating, she was startled by the voice of her boyfriend. He whispered into her ear, let's get up, the sun is out. And before she opened her eyes, he left her bedside. Within minutes, his voice boomed across the room. He was singing, he was whistling. He was wearing a striped t-shirt like the one in her dream. She swallowed and held her breath. She covered her eyes with her forearm. She stayed in bed. It was a peaceful, sunny, and warm Sunday morning. The heat touched her arms, her lips, and the fire woke inside of her. Tomorrow, she would marry him. She needed the papers. Borders stained their kisses. A green card, a paper. The guard slowly left her vision as her eyes adjusted to the room. Her heart felt like a clenched fist inside her chest. She pried her eyes open and walked into the living room. I had a bad dream, she spoke softly. He didn't hear her. She walked to the coffee machine and got black coffee. It ran down her throat and she felt the satisfaction roam into her nostrils. The whiff filled her mind. Her boyfriend continued to sing mindlessly around the room. She walked back to the bed with the peach bed sheets. Right in the middle of the sheets, there was blood. In her haste to wake up, she had not paid attention to her body. She had her period. The sheets marked by blood. Then he appeared in the room. What happened, love? He reached and touched her arm. He noticed the blood. Just blood, she told him. He quickly walked to the bed and picked up the sheets. Don't worry, it was time to send them to the wash anyhow. His voice reached her as he tore the sheets apart. Yeah, I know, she responded while walking out of the room. She did not tell him that she dreamt of the guard every night. Her throat being snapped and her mind being swallowed into a black hole, her body with blood. Each night the, the guard rose and touched her. He was there next to her. In her dreams, he wore a mask. She was scared to try to break it. If she used her nails, she knew she would scratch it off. Each time she woke up beforehand. Each time she woke up with bile in her throat. Every morning, she sipped it down with black coffee. Thank you. Thank you, Erika. Thank you so much. Very powerful opening. Um, let's, are you ready, Jessica? No, you need a minute? Okay. Let's uh, bring up Evelyn Cruz. Evelyn Cruz, where'd she go? Hi, my name is Evelyn, and I am working on a memoir about my brother, Eddie, who passed away from cancer in 2017. I will be reading a piece I wrote about his deportation in 2010. It's called The Envelope. I felt my insides twirl as I saw the envelope on the kitchen counter. It was addressed to my father, but I knew it was intended for the whole family to read. The envelope had, los quiero mucho, 
written in very delicate script in the center. I could tell Eddie spent a lot of time on the envelope, perhaps due to boredom or longing. Next to the phrase was a drawing of a bear smiling. It almost looked like it was traced out of a book. The facial features on the bear were thought out. It had dimples, and the eyebrows were carefully placed to match the smiling expression. He even shaded the bear's body with a pencil to make it look like fur. As I took a closer look at the envelope, I noticed that he shaded the entire envelope with a pencil very lightly. It was very sheer, you could barely see it. Perhaps it was to add some color to this plain white envelope, but it reminded me of the coloring technique our father taught us. My father, a perfectionist, would always make sure that we colored inside the lines. He would only let us use color pencils because he claimed they were the most precise coloring tools. After we colored something for homework, he would make us take a napkin and rub it over the color lightly. He said it smoothed out the hard lines and the color would stand out more. I never argued with my father, but I never saw a difference. However, as I looked at this envelope from my brother, I realized that he still used the technique. As I read his name on the top left corner, I couldn't help but envy his handwriting. It was written in pencil, but he had carefully traced over the name and address a couple of times to make it bold. LaSalle Detention Facility, Trout, Louisiana. Those words looked so foreign to me, and I could only imagine how foreign that place must be to him. We had spoken on the phone very briefly two days ago, but his time was limited, and he used most of his minutes updating my parents on his case or asking them for money. So I knew very little about what this place was like. He had written to my parents twice before, but I wasn't allowed to read those letters. My parents had gone out to get groceries, but something told me I was allowed to read this letter. Not only was it left on the kitchen counter, but the previous envelopes didn't have any drawings on them. I went ahead and opened it and started reading. I felt relieved when I saw that the letter was addressed to the whole family. Right from the start, he apologized for not writing often. He shared he had been locked in isolation for a few days, but that he was out now and he was fine. I paused and tried not to be mad that he didn't share any other details about that. What had he gotten in trouble for this time? What was it like being isolated in jail? I picked up the letter again and continued to read. He explained that the immigration officer in charge of his case had a lot of other cases and that he was probably going to spend another month in there before getting deported. The following section was addressed to my parents. He told them how much he missed being home, how grateful he was for their support, and how much he desperately wanted to make things right with them again. He promised that if they helped him come back to New York City after he was deported, he would do things differently. He promised them to finish high school, to get a job, and to pay them back. I had heard him make these promises to my parents not too long ago, after the first time he was arrested. I knew my parents wouldn't leave him to fend for himself, but they were also smart enough not to believe he was really going to change this time. Although I really hoped he was serious about changing his ways, not just for his sake, but for mine too, I wanted him back in our home. When Eddie was still living with us, he would wait until everyone fell asleep to sneak out of the house every other night. On the nights that he was home, we would stay up late in the living room talking for hours. He would confide in me the things he would do when he was out with his friends at night, knowing I would keep his secrets from our parents. 
I knew he didn't mean any harm or disrespect towards them, so I just prayed that he would really change so he could come back home. I never knew. I knew he had done nothing wrong by keeping stuff from our parents, but somehow I felt responsible for the situation we were in. The last section of the letter was addressed to me. He started off by telling me how much he missed me, and I could feel the tears forming in the corner of my eyes, but I pushed them back to keep reading. He asked me not to worry about him and to go about my life as if nothing was wrong. But everything is wrong, I thought. He promised me we would be together again soon to resume our long talks before bed, and then he asked me to write back to him when I got the chance. For the past month, I had spent every other night waiting until everyone was asleep to cry in my room. It was bad enough that my parents were worried about him, and yet right now I felt the blood rush to my face as I started crying hysterically, not caring that my parents could walk in any minute. I missed his crooked smile and his bad jokes, the good advice he never followed, and the endless stories he would tell. Those nights we would spend sitting and talking in our living room always made me feel secure. At that moment, I realized I wasn't crying so much because I missed him. It was the image of my older brother sitting alone in a cell with cement walls, drawing that bear that made me lose control. Thank you. Thank you, Evelyn. Uh, next, we'll call up uh, Anas Ahmed. Where'd you go? Oh, there you go. <laughs> Hiding in the corner. Here you go. Cool. Hello. All right. First off, could you go? Could you all like give a, like a, a round of applause for yourselves for like coming here tonight? Like, I, like seriously, come on. So I'm gonna be sharing three poems tonight, and uh, let's get right ahead with it. <clears throat> Republic of Translation. Translation begins with the Republic of Tongue. It begins with removal of your public lung playing with poetry's superfly music sheet. Translate that, Harlem Translate that Harlem street talk your mother taught and play with your 32 teeth along our Christian piano keys. Avoid the sing-song sound of your nouns before they become new blues and woo-hoos for those who couldn't own their tongues. Go unsung for your culture, seeds, long weeds, and our young. You weave together stories of exhumed bones for whom we don't care. You are no native in the Republic of Translation. You are a native in the Republic of Cows, Pimps, and Corpse. Tone the weight of your native tongue and cut your breath away from phantoms of your nation. We are your new mirror and canvas. In a Satan's cue, let us foreplay. Let us wipe away that Nile spit, ancient speak, hip-hop beat from your mouth. Give us the anatomy of your name so we can know who to blame on Fox News headlines and claim to our state's prison crimes. You have become our self-portrait, a prism. You have become, our, you have become a semi-automatic excuse for our perverted muse. Our latest, news has you, our latest news has you carry out our XXX in our back streets, schools, courts, and projects. You, you say we turned you into an object. We say you have a complex. Sex, money, murder runs venom in our citizens' veins and translates onto you, 21st, shackles and chains. You've become an X-rated memory that no longer needs translation. You've reached completion. We mixed American blood deep 
in your bones, in your gangbanger heart. Your parents' art built your bones in hope to bury their, you their histories. But your chest has lost its foreign song when you become our chess piece. Whereas next season's weather has no longer feathers, whether you care or not, the Republic will pistol grip the hands of your sons and daughters. So by like a show of hands, like who here knows like Gwendolyn Brooks? Just kind of, okay, we got a fair share. So I want to dedicate this next poem to her because really without uh, one of her poems called We Real Cool, I would never have written this. <clears throat> Street uniform for Brooks. Those midnight boys roll down Brooklyn in the dance of smooth chords and thin gin. At Bay Ridge, our seven plant bullets in the soil of graffiti bricks. They've been lurking to the tune of Shakur and Own Sin. Those midnight boys are rolling down Brooklyn. They're real cool, you know? Their art of snatching prey from unpaved streets, cruising stolen skin to prospect where our seven plant jazz in. On mornings, our boys leave high school during recess. Gathering at the shovel, our pool players begin striking matches and plans to roll down Brooklyn. It's dead late soon. Our seven, filling the air in straight methane, begin to lose their grins. On the highway, our seven plant their blood in. In June, the pale bearers carried seven coffins into ground to the songs of organs and tear and kin. At Bay Ridge, our seven planted bullets in. Now, our midnight boys roll down in Brooklyn. All right, so this is my uh, last poem. And this is like a dedication to my uncle because this is a, a true life experience we had together. And he's back in Egypt right now, but I really wanted to dedicate this to him. So Ode to Blade Metal. Here, dust rides air as horses, sand teeth at dry skin. I am 12. Ahmed waits till dusk to perform his work. I stare. He rinses his herder's hands in the metal bucket till it stings. Cupping with both palms, he showers sticky sweat from date fields. He holds out for me groundwater. My fingers barrel into, its sea, barrel into its sea blue and I sloppily wet my thove. He reaches into his pocket and shows me his knife. Red stains dress its handle. He skins the wind in example. His wrists raggedly dance the metal till a screech breaks air. The workers pull a beast with horns made to skewer alive men. Eight men weigh down the bull for slaughter. Ahmed gives the blade. I walk and place my hand on its neck. Its eyes dart like fruit flies. Bismillah, I whisper a dua and open its throat. It roars for God and tongue and hooves scratch air. It begins to bleed. I carry blood, its stone metal, its pierced breath. I plaster and lock its sacred story on the written word here. Thank you. Thank you, Ahmed. Uh, let's get uh, Amanda Almeida to come up. Cool. Thank you. This side, this side. I'm starting to figure out all your names. I'm quick. And welcome to everyone who's just joined us. Welcome to Dreaming Out Loud. Good evening, everyone. Ooh, okay. This is a little harder than I thought. <laughs> um, so my name is Amanda Almeida, and I'll be reading a piece calling home, titled Calling Home. I had just been cast in my first pre-professional production. Best of all, it happened to be West Side Story. 
Getting to be a part of a story about a group of Puerto Rico immigrants fighting for their right to reside in America forlornly agreed with my own journey to reconcile my story. At our first rehearsal, I trotted through the heavy doors of the White Plains Performing Arts Center on time. I tried to discreetly scan the room. Everyone was carefully holding on to their pictures. Ironically enough, the, my printer broke that morning, so I wasn't seen carefully holding mine. Our director sent us an email a week prior, asking us to bring in a picture that represented the word home to us. I, as usual, left to do this at the last minute, hence the printer fiasco. <laughs> that morning, the word home reminded me of a park my family and I used to peruse around every Sunday during my childhood in Brazil. Not waiting a second longer, I rushed to the kitchen to ask my mom the name of this park. She knew it was named after somebody important, but she couldn't remember who. My dad came to my rescue. He typed the name of the park on my phone, and I, quick, and I quickly swept through Google Images. I chose the first pleasant picture I found. Our first rehearsal started with us introducing ourselves, our roles, and our pictures. When my turn rolled around, I unlocked my phone twice. My shaking thumbs were too nervous to get my password right the first time. I tried to speed through my apology for not having my printed copy. This was the first time we were all meeting each other. I wanted to rein in my thumbling ways as much as possible. Yet, as soon as I began to talk about the significance behind this bark, restrain would be the last thing possible. I felt my throat close up. I panicked. Luckily enough, my brain told me to pause. I listened. The air burned as it rushed down my esophagus, bursting into the veins of my expanding lungs. I felt strange, numb. My feet were planted on the square room of plaster, but my mind kept registering infinite distance. I don't remember what I said next. Whatever it was, it was short. I was back in the chair before I knew it. I slowly dropped my chin down, letting my hair fall on my face trying to hide myself from the group as the next person took their turn. My body was still as a statue. My mind was rapidly replaying this interaction over and over again. Why? Why this? I knew it wasn't because I missed the park, per se. At this point, I hadn't seen it in 12 years. I don't even remember those red roses ever being there. Actually, I don't even remember those benches or those bushes. I would have never picked this picture as my as a photograph of my beloved park if it wasn't for Google Images. Why then? Why this picture of home? It wasn't until months later when someone asked me to describe home when I finally realized, it wasn't until later when I, excuse me, it wasn't until months later when someone asked me to describe home that I was finally able to get it. This park, the memory it holds, is the last time I remember feeling safe. I was too afraid to sit in these thoughts that day the concrete floor and the fold-up chair my body laid upon didn't give me the strength I needed that day. Looking back, I don't think anything could. I forced myself to fixate on my classmate's sharing of his picture next to me. Over the next hour, I constantly kept willing my body to be present. Over the next hour, I constantly failed. My mind drifting to the distant shouts of my mother telling me to slow down. I wasn't a rebellious child when I was no longer a rule follower when I rode my bike on the sidewalks of Plaza Pedro Sanchez. To five-year-old me, those sidewalks held a promise of uninterrupted attention. I was no longer held back by the fumbling little legs of my younger sister. 
I could go anywhere. Fast was my preferred speed. I zoomed past the people trotting by. I would catch their annoyed vocalizations of how I dared to interrupt their peace. I smiled. How dare they not catch up to mine? I wasn't satisfied until I was able to pick up enough speed to blur their, spe to blur their faces, their words, idle. Outside these bike rides, I don't remember this park, except the churro cart around the southwest corner. I can't seem to remember any other details. Maybe it was because I never paid much attention in the first place. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Oh, let's see. Let's call Annette Reed. Why don't you come up? Come on down. an excerpt from um, a short story I'm writing called Leaving Belcastle. I'm from a small district called Belcastle in Jamaica and the decision to leave for the United States was not an easy one. Um, Alex had been waiting for me by the gate with a tiny basket in his hand. As I approached him, I could feel that something was, something was still amiss. He seemed a bit agitated. Two weeks before, we had a long talk about my upcoming migration to the United States to pursue higher education and a better life. I had been helping him on the farm during the pimento season, but it was time for me to move on, so I applied for a tourist visa at the American Embassy and surprisingly was successful. Hi, darling, how are you? I greeted him. I'm okay, he unconvincingly said. He handed me the basket, he handed the basket to me, cupped my face with both hands and gave me a kiss on my forehead. Mangles, he said. I know how much you love them. If you leave, you won't get to enjoy them anymore. They don't have those in America. He paused for a minute. They don't have shit in America but guns and problems. Their education level is not higher than Jamaica. It's just that they have better resources. It's a shame that a man has to leave his own damn country to go, go find better in another man's backyard. I was astonished at the outburst. Usually, he was calm and measured with his temperament, but I also knew he had moments where he railed against being born in England and colonialism. I didn't want to say anything that would further upset him, so I stayed silent. He grabbed my shoulders and pulled me closer to him, then hugged me tightly around my waist. I don't want you to go. I love you, Surya Plinton, my future wife. Surya Plinton Mellonford. Doesn't that sound great? My eyes welled up with tears as I began to doubt my decision to leave Jamaica. I've known Alex for most of my life. He was my best friend and the man of my dreams for a long time. I met him at age 12, my first day in high school, and like tended flowers, our love blossomed over time through awkward stages of puberty and the watchful eyes of mama and, and father 
four rare, very rarely allowed boys to socialize at our house. <laughs> Alex was different. He was charming and polite. Now it was time to say goodbye. I was leaving for America. He reached into the left breast of his shirt and pulled out two photographs. One was of the day he graduated high school, and the other was of him sitting on the saddled horse, looking unshaven and rugged. The horse belonged to his father, who had died a few years before. If you must go, he said, please don't forget me. I won't, I promised him. I awoke one morning and unpacked the tiny suitcase I had already packed with the small amount of items I would need. The thick gray wool sweater that mama gave me to stave off the cold weather was still lying on the floor. The bags of dried peppermint leaves and balls of homemade cocoa that looked like deep pigmented gigs were sitting next to my shoulder bag with a note from mama that said how long I should let the peppermint seep in the hot water and how much water to boil for one chocolate ball as if I didn't already know. There was a letter from Alex with a post-it note attached instructing me to not open it until I arrive in America. I emptied everything in the suitcase on the floor and was just sitting there with my head in my hands when Mama walked in. I heard her footsteps come into the room, but I did not move. She came and sat down beside me, rested the palm of her right hand on my left shoulder and said, if it feels as messy as your belongings look scattered on the floor, then don't go. It's not about that, Mama, I said. It feels surreal. I had never had dreams about leaving and being so far away from you and Daddy. I wasn't sure that I wanted to let her in on what was happening between Alex and me, but she could clearly see that I was troubled. Something tells me you're not at peace with your decision, Surya. I looked away from her for a moment to gather myself. Is it Alex? Is it? My leaving is very unsettling for him, Mama. I want to leave, but to see the look on his face is heart-wrenching. I feel as if I am betraying him by leaving, that it is so selfish of me to want something more. She got up off the floor and walked towards the window, the one facing the mountain. She parted the lace curtain with her right hand and with her left pressed against the window pane. She stood there for a couple minutes before she invited me over. Come here, Surya, she called. Come here and let me show you something. I stood beside her and looked out at the vast expanse across acres and acres of trees that looked like miles of green carpet suspended in midair. You see that mountain, she began. It looks impossible to climb, oh, doesn't it? All my life, I've wanted to go have a go at it to climb to the top of that mountain and see for myself what is beyond there. In the early years of life with Daddy, I wanted to up and climb to the top of that pinnacle. But he said, what for? You have a job as a teacher. You should be satisfied. There are wild boars and conies with sharp teeth like daggers and all manner of evil that you can't see. I stayed scared and many a night I regret not finding the courage to go climb that mountain do other things that I wanted to do, even if it meant doing it alone. You get what I'm trying to tell you? I'm stuck here with your daddy, but you don't have to be with Alex. I nodded my head. Then why is it so hard to break away from him? 
You are not too young, Surya, and you are not old enough. A woman will give up her future because of what she feels in her heart, but sometimes the heart will betray us if we aren't too careful. The only man you've known in that way is Alex, and maybe it was my fault, not wanting you to be a commoner. Nobody wants a commoner. We both stood at the window and watched the blackbirds frolic from trees to trees. Two crows flew overhead and circled a few times as if the scent of death was present, and they were looking for confirmation to pounce. A woodpecker could be heard in the distance drilling on the trunk of a coconut tree, and the skies opened up with a burst of morning rain that lasted but a few minutes. Then the sun peeked from beyond the clouds as if just waiting for the rain to stop its performance. See, Surya, Mama said, life doesn't stop for you and because of you. From the moment I gave birth to you, I knew you were different, strong, independent, and vulnerable. All the promises Alex made are just that, promises. Your daddy made promises. Listen to me, my firstborn. Finish packing your things and go to America. Go see for yourself. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. We got some newcomers. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Welcome. Uh, let's see. Let's call uh, Berita Lutolia. <laughs> Woo! She got some fans up in here. Two things before I start. Uh, first of all, I'm losing my voice because I had my immigrant mother on the phone right before coming here, and you know how they make their voices match the distance, so we had to scream. Um, and second of all, shout out to that whole line over there. My adopted family who pulls up at events knowing that my parents are not in the country and can never show up to those types of events. Thank you, I love y'all. <laughs> all right. Um, this one is titled Crooked Hands and White Dreams. That's for my mama. Let me pull this closer. Let's get intimate with this mic. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm too tall for this. <laughs> I am struggling to open my eyes, not knowing if the bell I am hearing is ringing in my dream or at the door. It's 1 p.m. It's also a shitty Saturday morning in 2015. Nothing was good about 2015, aside from the fact that Obama was president, and even that. I'm wishing for the glue holding my eyelids together to melt so I can see clear enough to get to the door. You always curse at me on Saturday mornings for not waking up early enough to help you with groceries. You wave your hands in the air after dropping the bags on the floor, reminding me of their deteriorating condition and telling me that I need to help out more. I know, Mommy, Eddie. If I spoke our language fluently, I would tell you that I pull an all-nighter every Friday night since 2012 to look for more work, because even my three jobs won't get us out of this hole. I would tell you that public school was nothing but a 12-year-old long reminder that the box where my worth is located only unlocks if I have the citizenship of the white man. I would tell you that I'm sorry that cleaning for decades distorted every bone in your hands. If I spoke our language fluently, I would tell you that every glimpse I get of your hands make, makes my jaw clench so hard I should, have a ah, I should have a dentist on speed dial. 
Your knuckles look like they're about to burst into flames and release all the physical pain of seeing our family tortured and burned, the pain of fleeing the war that killed your country and raped your daughter, the pain of accepting immigration, the pain of becoming a cleaning lady with two college degrees, the pain of accidentally forcing integration upon your child, the pain of seeing her lose her mother tongue to that of the white man, same white man who taught you to feel inferior. So many pains to sort through, mommy. I wonder which one kicks in first when you sip on your coffee in the morning. If I spoke our language fluently, I would tell you that I, what, I had failed, what I failed to realize early on is that for every new swelling, another door opened for me. For every floor cleaned, a new ceiling I smashed wide open with a strength so colossal it puts the oppressor's God to shame. For every beating you took, I beat a rich white kid at college admissions. For every single scary government letter you didn't understand, I wrote a hundred more that prevented a thousand problems from coming at our door. For all of those 63 visits law enforcement paid us to check our papers and stamp us as, as illegals, I've planned to add double that amount of vacation stamps on all the pages of our new passports. If I spoke your language fluently, I would tell you that the dreams we had were not ours. Our dreams are not, our dreams are not to get in that order a husband, a degree, a gigantic house, a shiny car, and five children. Those are the oppressor's dreams. I wish you would understand that. And I wish you understand that we are made to want that, that we are made to, and we are made to never reach that. But you would never understand. You're right to say that it is all written. But what you don't get is that those things are not written in the stars. They're written in the laws, and they're hidden in them. The same laws preventing you from being seen as equals to the eyes of justice, in the eyes of justice. The same laws that prevented you from receiving proper health care. The same laws and biases that prevented you from doing anything else but cleaning because you look different. The same laws that had you deported. If you spoke my language fluently, I would tell you that after seeing all of this for more than 20 years, I refuse to dream of white success in lands where I cannot even dream of being treated as human. That definition of success applies solely to those who were not removed from their homeland and had their hearts snatched out of their chests, whether it was by another human or by circumstances to those whose lives started out with toys and smiles, not with chains and bombs, to those who did not have a hiding spot in their house for when police came knocking, looking for ways to feed the horrible image they painted of us. If you, s if you spoke my language fluently, I would speak to you new words of freedom. I would tell you that those dreams I have rejected, not because I was lazy, but because I'm getting my hands ready to build dreams that go far beyond them. What use can I make of those white dreams of that temporary wealth that would give me the illusion that I have redeemed myself of the crime of crossing borders that a criminal country made legitimate. What the fuck am I going to do with material things that only have value in the white man's world? I will learn your language so perfectly, and I will tell you that I want more. Mommy, I want more. I want freedom, absolute freedom. I will not be grateful like they want us to be. I want the only thing that can get close to justifying our torture, our immigration, your pain, and my anger. I want the only thing that will put an end to this catastrophe. I want an apocalypse of love where only immigrants, displaced natives, queer people, and people of color survive. I want something that will reverse all the anger I have inside of me and that will make your crooked hands function again. I want something that will cure the pain inside of you. I want freedom for my people, freedom for your people, freedom for all people. Wait, no, all people except them. I want their bodies free, but I want their empty souls in shackles. I want them tied to the hell they brought upon themselves while we enjoy heavens we deserve. Heavens that will have nothing to do with what, it described, with what is described in the holy books that they used to bury us. Heavens that are so bright they will guide us through the borders again. 
maybe even back home. Mommy, I want heavens for you, and I want heavens for us. Heavens whose beauty runs much deeper than the oppression we internalized. Thank you, Dorita. Thank you so much. Wow. Keeping it real. Oh, let's bring Rosa Mayo up. Yep. I'm not as tall as you. <laughs> um, I'm going to move this away because you can't see me behind this thing. So the title of my piece is called The Reality of Dreaming. And just a quick story, background to this, because I will be starting halfway through. Um, this epiphany I have takes place right after I take the math placement exam at Hunter College. And coming out of that exam, I knew I had failed it. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the most miserable time ever. Congratulations. You have been chosen to be a recipient of the Dream.us Scholarship Award. Holy cow, that had not been something I was expecting during a miserable time. It took a while for the meaning of what I had just read to really digest. My mind had gone blank momentarily, but then I felt a cheesy smile begin to spread on my face. For once, it wasn't a bitter disappointment I felt. It was a victory. I hadn't felt so good in so long. I had almost forgotten the refreshing taste of accomplishment. My miserable state had been lifted and thrown into the sky. I felt a weight lift off my chest, and I no longer had felt so clogged up with worry. I felt as if my smoke had cleared away from my insides, allowing oxygen to fully expand throughout my lungs. My anxiety in that moment vanished, and the uncertainty I had felt all year long was gone. My scholarship would help pay for my school in its entirety, which, yes, elated me because it meant I wouldn't have to pay for school. <laughs> But it also elated me in knowing that my parents wouldn't have to work harder, burning away their energy at double the speed just to put me through college. Obviously, I was gonna work and help fund my own education. But now my parents nor myself had to worry about how we were gonna find that money for me to continue it. For me, this wouldn't have been a problem either way. I had begun working at a retail store earlier that year, and although it wasn't my dream job, it also wasn't the sort of jobs my parents held. What retail required for me at most was heavy social interactions, which was bad because I was a heavy introvert. <laughs> but I had no luxury of having a job that didn't rob me of my physical endurance. My mom worked as a housekeeper, and she was merely in her mid-30s. But bit by bit, my mom's back pains weren't going away. Her hands were becoming rough, and she no longer had the same energy she once possessed. Her job was cleaning the houses of others, a job not even the homeowner wanted to do for himself. My dad worked as a carpenter and a landscaper. Again, another job that no one wanted to do. Their jobs required hours under the sun, hauling tools and vacuums up and down stairs, their youthful strength and their diminishing endurance. Their jobs had begun to wear them down more, and their energy was beginning to wane. I realized that this meant that they wouldn't be able to hold the same jobs in a couple years. Granted, they weren't that old yet, <laughs> but they certainly weren't going to be young forever. My job offered me a future pension plan where I didn't have to worry about how I'd survive in the future. My parents had no such opportunities, and I hadn't realized before the horror of such an uncertain future at an older age. Before, I wouldn't have been able to comprehend what it would mean for myself as an old lady unable to move the way I used to, unable to work and sustain myself. 
But in that instance, the reality of what our illegal status meant for my parents was eye-opening. Never before had I analyzed the situation of her status and what it truly meant. Growing up, I never really experienced anything that would have highlighted the differences between me and my peers. Slowly, as the college process began to pace in the reality of adulthood, I had slowly begun to realize how truly disadvantaged I was compared to them. Being unable to apply for FAFSA was the first time I had really felt the impacts of what could not be possible for me. A couple of years back, I had received DACA, which was the one opportunity I had been given by Congress, to be allowed the opportunity to work here, just like any other citizen. Hence the reason why I didn't have to make the same sacrifices that my parents had. But seeing the disadvantage between them and myself showed to me how maybe my status wasn't the worst it could be. My parents didn't even, even have an opportunity at an education. Another realization dawned upon me was the importance of knowledge and how doors could be opened by this tool. I had grown to love learning that year, and one thing I had hoped for was that everyone could experience a joy for learning. I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> Knowing my parents did not even have the option to expand their horizons had made the reality of what their lives were like in this country clear to me. I knew that I wanted to have a good job to be able to take care of my parents. Yet, despite having this goal in mind, I had never really understood how important it was for me to see it through. After weighing the severity of my reality, my desire to go to school, get a degree, and get a career that would allow me to support my family became much more intense. I felt a need to shelter my parents the way they had sheltered me. I wanted to offer the same protection, but it all started by going to college. My elation for such a victory had lifted my anxiety and panic away momentarily, but I had almost forgotten that I had yet to be accepted into a CUNY school, the only scholarship my would pay for. My little bubble of happiness was burst too soon. I had not gotten to enjoy the good news for very long. I didn't know how the heck I was gonna go to college then, but eventually things would work out. And I ended up receiving an acceptance letter from Lehman College a couple days later. <laughs> In that instance, I felt discouraged once more at the challenge I was up against. Not only was I going to possibly lose the scholarship, which meant another chance thrown out the window, but it meant that my goal would not be met. I began to fear what my future seemed to be looking like. Clearly, I was exactly, wait, sorry. If I couldn't make it into college, it meant I'd have to work at Hollister for the rest of my life. Clearly, I was exaggerating a tad bit in my young mind, but at that time, it seemed that way. And it sucked, because I knew I was better than working at a retail store. I knew I had the potential of becoming a physicist, as I had set my mind to be towards the end of senior year despite the fact that I skipped trigonometry for two years as well. <laughs> I knew myself, and I knew I had the potential to be anything I so damned please. But now, because of disadvantages and honestly poor decision making, I would never get the chance to reach my full potential. My chances of one day becoming a professional would never be given to me. Risking it sounding a bit conceited, I had never thought that such a mistake could happen to me. There were times where, despite working hard, I didn't get what I had hoped for. But these small instances were a rarity. It wasn't often where I had to face defeat and failure. It wasn't that I didn't know how to cope and handle those things, but I certainly wasn't equipped to deal with them gracefully just yet. It was devastating and frustrating that the one failure I would face in life was not getting into college. I knew that my journey to continue my education was gonna be uncertain, but I never expected for my path to lead me away from the opportunity. 
But the realization that I had just come to terms with had drove the hunger further into the pits of my stomach, shoving anxiety out of its way. I felt a hunger that I hadn't felt before, one that had to be satisfied with another victory. In that moment, I had no clue how I was going to go to college, but I no longer felt defeated. I felt hopeful. I had a job, a good enough job that would allow me to work and pay my school, even if all I earned was minimum wage. Just because my illegal status impeded me from receiving financial aid, it hadn't meant that I was completely without economic support to get me to college. I was going to have to do it one way or another. It was the only way I could guarantee not only a better life for me, but it meant that I could give back to my parents for all the sacrifices they had made in order to provide me with better opportunities. Although being undocumented in the United States meant that I didn't, I didn't have the same doors as my peers open to me, there was still more room for opportunity here than in Mexico. But this didn't lessen the alienation one feels when they are stuck between two worlds that they are not really a part of. Growing up in the United States, but being born in Mexico, distorted my identity for a long time growing up. I hated most American staple foods, like PB&J sandwiches and mac and cheese. <laughs> but I celebrated Christmas instead of Dia de los Reyes. I celebrated Halloween instead of El Dia de los Muertos, which is more like a week, honestly. I replaced my Spanish for my fluency in English and became immersed in the American lifestyle at a young age. I grew up in New York City, a multicultural melting pot. In the diverse city that it is, I never grew up in a homogeneous place with only one language spoken. Mexico, despite being my birthplace, was unknown to me. But here, I would never really be American either. Being brought up by Mexican immigrant parents meant that I was not often on the same page as my classmates. I didn't recognize or listen to any of their music. They had no clue what the lunches my mom packed for me were, and I couldn't comprehend the mannerisms and the cultures of American kids just yet. I was an outsider, and I had felt it heavily my first couple of years. Eventually, I began to understand the social interactions between people, and I became immersed in its culture. I have lived in the United States basically my whole life. My five years spent in Mexico were still saved in my memory, but it's been years since I have been to my home country. I haven't been able to fly out and visit the family that have now become strangers and whom I don't recognize in video calls that my mom makes. I never knew the feeling of having your grandma's house to go to now and again. There have been so many, so many sacrifices that made no words, that no words would make you feel their weight. Later on that summer, my dad would go on to suffer the pain of having to see my grandpa die and being unable to say goodbye in person. I had been working away at a camp when my grandma fell, when my grandpa fell on his deathbed, and I'd prayed I'd get home in time to say goodbye at least through camera. I made it home in time to say goodbye, but my father never got to go home. While the shocking truth of my situation of being a dreamer came crashing down on me for the first time after that test, there have been moments to this day that continue to remind me of the frustrating journey I have yet to tread. I have made huge accomplishment in my life, accomplishments in my life thus far, and I couldn't have imagined being at the place I am now back when I was 17. Sometimes I'm still faced with situations that leave me with desire, the desire to go out and really venture into the outskirts of my boundaries, the desire to achieve all I ever wanted to and more, despite the disadvantages thrown at me. After the revelation that had dawned upon me, I had dispelled the fear and anxiety with courage and motivation. Despite the worry that I would not be able to go to college right away, I began to see my goals a little clearer. 
The desire to achieve success was sharpened by the motivation to see my family through to a better life. I walked away from that moment fully washed in the truth of what my parents' life was really like and how my opportunities and victories could help prevent such a dark, hopeless future for them. I had begun to see a goal and a vision in my mind that I was going to grab by its tail and bring it into fruition. I wasn't going to let my dreams stay dreams, no matter how hard my illegal status would prevent me from doing so. Of course, this is always easier said than done. <laughs> and sometimes the real reality of dreaming is that dreams don't always come true. But dreams have a power to them. And for me, they continue to be my motivation to go after what I want, even when the circumstances tells me it's futile. Besides, dreaming is the one thing Congress, or anyone, couldn't take away from me. Thank you, Rosa. Kevin Martinez, you ready? Cool. Just a few more readers. Did Shiuli Ali ever arrive? No. Okay, just doing some inventory here. Halima Suleiman, you here. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Almost there. Good night to everybody. Um, I just wish that my dad was here so he could hear me read this. Oh, I gotta get closer. My fault, my fault, my fault. I got you. Um, I wish my dad was here to hear this and understand how much I gave in to write this story. And also, I would like to thank Charlie for helping me write this story and um, meeting a fellow friend as well. Ever since I was younger, I had enjoyed all the music my dad would play in his car, ranging from some rap to my favorite grunge rock. I had no knowledge why my dad liked rock music so much, and it was the only thing he would listen to. I just knew the music sounded good, and I loved the musical delivery. We were on the road towards New York. Ever since I had permanently gone to New York, he took upon himself to, to drive me all the way from Bristol, Connecticut, to my house in Flatbush, Brooklyn. What are you trying to listen to, my father asked. Just throw the usual on, I told him. Watch how I'm going to serve all these cars and get to your house faster than last time, my dad said. I nervously replied, okay. I was a fan when he would go fast and pass a lot of cars since I could remember, but as I got older, I worried more and more, not because I was in the car, because, but because I wondered how recklessly he would get when I was in it. I wasn't in the car. The time me and my dad spent in the car was a bond I shared with him. I didn't want that to end anytime soon, or at least not for it to end without me being with him. I had, heard, I had heard countless stories of my dad being the wild child in Mexico, that being a reason for why my grandparents brought him into the United States. The, the other reason being to bring my mother and myself. The change he experienced in Mexico was definitely rough, going from doing whatever he wanted to having to work for his family in places he didn't like. He began to feel the sense of his freedom being lost. He then had to cross the border and begin a new life in the United States. At the age of 18, these events were rigid to his mentality. Only being months old, I was unaware of what the sensation of immigrating is. As for my dad, it's clear he developed fear, paranoia, anxiety, and a beginning to a depression. Those factors being added to his mentality would only fuel a rebellion he had to restrain within himself. Due to the status in this new country, he arrived in Connecticut where all his family resided. It would help him adjust a little bit faster and get him into the sense of relief to not being completely alone and really have to start from the bottom. 
Still, going from Mexico City to a low-end neighborhood in Hartford, Connecticut was traumatic. No longer could he roam knowing everything he had to roam. He had to roam with someone teaching him all the basics. Not the normal basics a young child gets from their parents to roam the streets. The basics an immigrant has to get to memorize in order to live a safe life. So how is your mom, he asked. She's fine. I replied with the usual answer I would always give him. My dad had handled a split from my mom in a manner in which I just never knew anything about how he was doing. I would hear he was always in a bad mood and just kept, kept most of the things to himself. A clear depression had hit him. He had lost the only thing he was, that was giving him any sense of hope to keep working. He always hated the sense of being bossed around. I rarely can remember a time where he consistently was going to a job that was a typical nine to five. He found a way to become mechan a mechanic with a large language barrier and supplied himself with clients he found around Connecticut. He had hopped another barrier and was living the American dream immigrants come for. On a Father's Day, I told him, here, I colored this tie for you. I've been waiting to give you this all day. And he told me, thanks, but I don't wear these at my job. I was pretty devastated for a young kid because I thought he was like the other dads who would wear ties, but because of his legal status, he never got to be that type of person. How is your school going, he asked. I'm doing very well, I'm, and I just like it better here than how it was in Connecticut, I told him. What's so good of New York anyways, a frequent question he asked me. It's just better than the quiet there is in Connecticut. My dad always tried to, the best to be the good dad, but I knew he fully couldn't provide that. That's something I would never resent him for. It would be inhumane. Never had I seen him break down in front of me until when I was nine years old, that day would be the first time. I can remember that day it was feeling blue. The environment was feeling so depressed as if it knew what was happening. At the time I was unaware, I remember the Pearl Jam playing and how it was the first time my dad was driving slowly. When I got out and I took the last look back and saw a longing tear running down my dad's cheek through his tinted window, he was seeing his only close family leaving him. It was the start to his depression. My dad was never the same when I would go back and visit him. He became very quiet, having many mood swings sometimes, and avoided a lot of social contact and did not have the motivation to do anything. What else you been doing? I asked him. You know, the same old being at work all day and barely eating, just trying to push forward, he replied. There were many times I would talk to him and he kept telling me how he was antisocial and didn't like nobody. For someone to express themselves in that matter, and especially towards their own son, it means that he had reached a low point in his life. The effects of his immigration status made his mental health worse. He was no longer worried about anything. He didn't care and started to lose motivation. To be an immigrant, you need all the motivation you can get in order to move on, which my dad lacked for a long while. In perspective, his life was more endangered through his mental hardships than him living with an illegal status. In the mainstream media, it, it is always shown how immigrants go through a hard time either while they're in the process of getting deported or when they need help. But they can't get help due to their fear of being discriminated about their status. But this story goes to show the side of immigrants who sh struggle on their own with mental health bottles, battles while living in the United States. For the majority of the time, most immigrants do not want to speak about yet another problem they have to add to their worries or do not have the mentality of seeking help when they know their state of mind is not in a healthy phase. 
in my own experience, whenever someone in my family was not feeling well mentally, they would bring up all these reasons of how it's just stress getting to them or that they're having a hard day. These factors are definitely contributions towards having a mental health problem, but I believe that it should have been a reason for members of my family to talk more about mental health and become more informed about it instead of just belittling it and not expanding on how to get it into a clear state of mind. It's common for immigrants to have little to no knowledge about mental health, and when it's brought up, they most likely go ahead and not acknowledge the negative factors it can bring to an individual. It can be inferred that immigrants in this country do have some mental health deficiency, but we are rarely even considered to be human beings as much as the rest of the world. Immigrants have emotions and feelings as well as everyone, as well as having needs, which is the main reason why immigrants take a leap towards the enhancement of their life status. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Halima? My name is Halima, and the title of my piece is Home. I wake up to the sound of the cock's crow from my grandmother's poultry farm. I can hear the laughter of my little cousins as they chase the chickens around our family compound. I can feel the energy and the excitement that fills the house as I hear everyone shout, Up Nepal, which signals the power is now back on. I rush out of bed to charge my phone and lamps and proceed to iron all my clothes for the week when the power goes back off. <coughs> I curse under my breath. We haven't had light since the night before, and I'm beginning to get frustrated. I step out of the house to cool off, and I can feel the mix of the cool breeze from our mango tree and the sun's heat across my body. I feel the warm coarseness of the sand beneath my bare feet. As I walk out of my grandpa's compound, I take a look at the big unpainted family house surrounded by a tall green gate. The gate is to protect the house from prying eyes and to keep us safe. Behind that tall gate, I feel safe, protected, and free to be myself. As soon as I shut the gate behind me, I see two men in uniform calling out to me, hey, stop there. I'm startled and start to run. They chase after me and keep yelling at me to stop, but I keep running. My feet are starting to get blistered. My heart is thumping so hard it feels like it's going to burst out of my chest. Tears begin to fill my eyes as I search frantically for the tall green gate, my safe haven. Questions start to fill my head. How did they find out? Have I done anything to draw attention to myself? Who reported? As soon as I close my eyes to pray to God to take me back in time to before I left the house, I find myself falling downwards into a bottomless pit of darkness. I wake up in a drench of sweat and say to myself, not today, my holy mantra. This is not my first time having dreams of being chased by men <coughs> in uniform since my move to the United States four years ago. I think about the irony of my situation, the American dream. I moved to the US with the hope of getting a better life <coughs> and to be closer to my family, which I have had for the most part, but accompanied by terrifying nightmares and being separated from my extended family. My new home is a place where everyone is identified by a unique nine-digit number. <coughs> this set of numbers is almost a substitution for your name. It is the only way the government recognizes you as a person. 
It defines who you are, what you can or can't do, and what services you are eligible for. In my new home, I'm just another number among millions. I have become more aware about things that I never had to worry about in my native country. For example, how my skin color and Africanness influences the type of conversations people have with me. I've had questions and comments ranging from, how do you speak English so well? To, your accent is too thick. So I just said hello to you in Swahili. Mind you, Swahili is just one of over 1,500 languages spoken in Africa. <laughs> Tonight, as I take the elevator up to our one-bedroom apartment in a high-rise building, I can tell that something in the air is different. I follow the sweet smell of jollof rice and the burning scent of fried chicken right to the front of our apartment door. The light is turned off. My detective's instinct kicks, kicks in. It's 8 p.m. and everyone else should be home by now. My heart starts thumping as I gently turn the doorknob. A flood of bright lights flash in front of me and I hear a scream. Surprise! Then it hits me. It's my birthday today. I had been consumed all day by the news of the Muslims who were killed during prayers at a nearby masjid a few days ago. I left the house earlier today scared to wear my hijab. I was even scolded by my parents not to wear it. Samia, you know you're in another man's land. You cannot go out dressed like that and not expect to draw attention to yourself. You saw what happened in the news. Make sure to stay away from the masjid for a few days. Reluctantly, I had gone back into my room to take off my hijab. I just want it all to end. The terror in my soul, the voices in my head. I am scared, scared of what I represent, worried about how the government and American public sees me. Most of all, I'm scared of losing myself as a person. Tonight, I am home surrounded by my family and close friends. There is food, drinks, and loud laughter. Days like this are what keeps me going, reminding me that no matter what happens, I know that I have people who will always have my back. Tonight, as I drift into my dream world, I find my eight-year-old self in my grandfather's compound, surrounded by my parents, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, and friends. We are all in the courtyard on a large colorful straw mat. My head is on my grandma's lap as she sings me a lullaby from one of my favorite folk tales. I stare at the big blanket of stars in the night sky. I smile, and my worries and fears fade away as sleep engulfs me. For I know I am free and safe. I am home. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Halima. Thank you. Donata Watson. Cool. We're like ramping up toward the end here. Cool. In a time when um, a lot of Americans are confused, I just want to say thank you for being here and supporting Dreamers. I plan to do something else, and I have to change it up because um, my bigger supporter is here tonight, and I, I have to let her hear me say this one. It's called The First Five. Roar, 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 your butt gently down the stream. Me say merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. 
If you see a crocodile, don't forget to scream. In the first five years, my mama left me, even as a sickly child. It's okay, I was feisty. Moat them used to call me. Boy, me did fresh yesterday. I don't remember the first five years, only the parts I wish I could forget, forgive, resist, relive. Such rich foundation, fortunate foundations in that time my mama left me. Often I wonder if it had not been, where would I be? in the banana tree. <laughs> when I arrived, talking ceased. I got my mama now, so I just stayed age five. Five, five. Oh, how I love age five. Birthdays come, March days go. I get old, but still I remain a child. How beautiful it is to look at the world through those eyes. Mighty mothers, protect me. Elders, arise and protect me. They want to send me back because I missed the first five. Um, this year's theme for PEN America is Open Secrets. I would like to share that as a black woman who grew up undocumented in America, at times I'm afraid to leave my house. <laughs> so being here is no small thing. And I have to just, I am a warrior. <laughs> I am a conqueror. An overcomer, and I got the victory. Donata, this piece is called Nobody. Umi, me and nobody. Me and nobody. Me is not nobody. Umi, me and nobody. Me not have no paper, me not have no number. You know the number where they find the paper? Me not have no number, me is not nobody. They look a card. You know the card? And a really card? But it look like one card. Me are not nobody. Me not have no number where they find the paper, so me are not nobody. Fool, me now go on fool, me just I tell you, say, I am not nobody. I'm here, but I'm not really here. Technically, I'm here, but I'm there. I'm back home. I'm home. I'm not really here, but I'm back there. I'm home, if you can call it home. Me, I'm nobody. Me not even, I'm a picture, I'm one little card where say my address and say who me is. Card a card where say who me is and say my face. I know you can't see my face right here, so. But you can't see my face, we show me address, we tell you who me is, because me and no, nobody. I am not here. 
See, you don't see me. I am not here. I am not nobody. Keep on a try to tell the people them say, I am not nobody. And me here, but me not really there here. Probably you see me and you know my name. Donata. Donata. Oh, who that call me? Donata. Only certain people call me Donata. The people them will know say, I am not nobody. Them call me Donata. Donna. Oh, who that call me? <laughs> Donna. Yes. Lord, it's me. Yes, your servant. Me and nobody. That's what you tell me. You tell me, say, come and have the number. You know the number? With the pan of paper will look like one cut. The social security number. Yes, the social. Me not social. So me and nobody. When you have the social security number, them type it in on the computer and that make you somebody because you pop up, pop up in on the screen. You pop up on the computer and the computer say you're somebody, so that means you're somebody. And if you don't have no paper in a this land, you're not nobody. I'm here, but I'm not really here. You can't see me. Don't look at me. And don't ask me to look in your eye because I am not nobody. So you had to talk to me, but I can't really hear you. <laughs> but I hear the people them where they over there. So they might call me and they might say, Donna, Donna, come home now, Donna, Donna, time. Come home now, Donna, come. You're good. Come back to Jamaica, Donna, come. You know, see the people them not see you. You know, see the people them not want you. You know, have no people. You are nobody. I'm trying to tell you no, but you're not listening. It's Donata. But I'm not nobody, so I, I understand. Dea, but I'm not there, you know? Alvaro, Enrique, <laughs> wherever you are in the world, I just want to say big up yourself. He told us to come in here and read like gods. You're doing kingdom work. This is called prayer for a blue jay. A blue jay woke me up this morning. Coo, coo, coo. I saw it ago. Right by my window. 7.30 this morning, a blue jay woke me up. I jump out of my sleep and just start watch this rotted bird. It start peck peck from my windowsill, plant them, and just a move real erratic like. What is wrong with this bird? By the time me really get up, and get a chance to look up, just like that in a flash, the blue jay will wake me up, gone. And I saw it go, you asleep, your good, good sleep. And out of nowhere, something comes along when it's energy to wake you up. What a good thing I'm so resourceful. What a good thing I'm so faithful, so determined. No, no, don't get it. It's 7.30. 30. The bird come wake me up. Right at the nice part of the morning when I just needed a little bit more sleep. <laughs> I know, I know. I missed three alarms already. No, me, I forget up another 
coal and we start the day. You know, now that I think about it, imagine the people them, the Blue Jay couldn't wake up. Can you imagine? <laughs> Im the Blue Jay, they had them windows, jeer them. God, a blue jay woke me up this morning. Karma could have never wake up. Only one more and then you okay? We're going to bring up Amalia Olivas Rojas. We have two more readers and then we'll be done. We'll just go for a few minutes. Thank you. Hi, I'm reading an excerpt from my one-woman show called The Nancy on the Seven Tree. When my parents came first to Los New Yorks, they settled in what would become the biggest Mexico City replica there could be, Jackson Heights. <laughs> the Seven Train took them home and to work. Before LIC was the new Williamsburg, it was factories. Factories with about 100 employees, undocumented or documented, paid $4 an hour to make clothing for stores like Express. It's crazy, right? They left home just to look for home when they got here. My papa was who lost more. He liked Mexico. He loved Mexico. Whenever he spoke about our patria, he would glow with pride. I think that was probably one of the few times I've actually seen him love something. Pero Mexico didn't have the means to raise me, so he swallowed his pride, his achievements, his degrees, and his love to cross the border. To a country he didn't think much. You see, my papa, he made it a point to remind us that we owed nothing to this country. He taught me to understand that my mind and my talent were going to open doors, but it wasn't because I was here. He reinforced being tough, show no fear, no sadness, but the same man that taught me to not show or invest any emotion was the same man who cried and prayed for the character of Aurelio in El Señor de los Cielos. <laughs> Diosito, por favor, Lord, hear me. Por favor, cuida Aurelio. Que salga vivo de esto y que mañana esté bien y que ya no, ya no quiera la Mónica. She's bad, como la carne de puerco. Papi, he's like a fake character. Shut up, Lupe. He needs our support. <laughs> you think I'm joking? No, I still remember the night. I went to bed in my head thinking, is my father losing his shit? Was he so disappointed by our reality that he invested in fiction? For a while, I thought I was the biggest disappointment he's ever had. Like he had all these expectations for me. He had left all his dreams and ambitions so I could have some, and somehow I had failed him. But then I realized that he wasn't the only one whose heart had been broken, whose happiness had been stolen by migration. When my ama fell first in love, it was winter and she was older. And for the sake of my life and because she might be in this room or had cameras, I'm not gonna tell you how old she was. <laughs> but let's just say she had four kids and had been married for 35 years. Yeah, that shit happens, you didn't know? People get married and they're not in love. Yeah, I mean, well, some of them are in love. Fine, fine. But then it changes. It turns about kids and money, about survival. Surviving each other. 
especially if you're my mom and dad. See, my dad was this huge sci-fi fanatic. And when he wasn't ha watching how the aliens would take over, he was praying for Aurelio or trying to figure out reasons why he loved my mother. I think I came to understand my parents overall as people before I understood their love story around the age of 12. If I wasn't trying to fit into a sports bra, I was definitely listening to their petty love song battles. Who was more heartbroken by ex-lovers, by this country, by each other? You see all the classic Corta Venas artists. Juan Gabriel, Ana Gabriel, Pedro Fernandez, Joan Sebastian, Pimpinela, híjole, I can keep going. <laughs> Each Saturday morning would begin with Juan Gabriel's classic anthem of a past lover, their memories haunting them in their present miserable day. I would clean the toilet Saturday mornings thinking, who hurt y'all? <laughs> but man, could they belt out that yo te recuerdo from deep within their soul and never healed broken hearts, almost like they were looking for themselves in their memories. You know, now that I think of it, I ever, rarely ever saw them finding their wholeness in each other. Just anger, just pain, at times physical and emotional. Year after year, I witnessed my mother fade, turn gray, looking for reasons to smile. I heard my father continue to look for aliens and no longer for reasons to love my mom. Maria, no me sirves como mujer. You don't work for me as a woman, he whispered once. And that shit fucked with me, okay? How could my ama not be enough? I spent all of my college career trying to understand and trying to radicalize my mom. I told her, stand up to him. Tell him to jerk off if you aren't enough. I gassed her up, did her makeup. I would buy her flowers, tell her she was my sun and moon. Her womanhood had been stolen both in Mexico and the US. So here I was, a border kid, just trying to guide her back. One Saturday morning, I heard the music change. The first song wasn't Juan Gabriel, no, it wasn't. The anthem of a forbidden love. Two lovers hiding behind closed doors, knowing they shouldn't be together, knowing they have counterparts. This time I was pretending to be sick so the twins would have to clean the toilet. <laughs> and I heard my mother play, Te voy a cambiar el nombre, en base a lo que has traído. Ahora te llamarás Gloria, lo tienes bien merecido. <laughs> Eres secreto de amor, secreto. Eres secreto de amor. <laughs> What's going on? I left my bed with my greñas all over, as I, and I followed her to the, uh, to the kitchen as she sang along, her hips swaying from side to side, scrubbing the stove con ganas. She turned around and smiled at me. And that's when I knew my mother was in love. A pretty blush color on her lips. She began going out more, asking less questions. I saw her peel a skin layer back. She no longer needed my words. She no longer needed my hype. She had come back to herself without me. In all her chingona glory, my mother started to defy my father. When time came to confront the situation, 
my father didn't just blame the aliens. He also blamed his children. Sellouts, liars, traitors, malinches. We were no different than Moctezuma, who had basically handed over the Aztecs to the Spaniards. Tu sabias, Lupe. Papi, I, eres igual que ella. Nunca me hables. And we didn't. We didn't speak for several years, even when he was deported, even when he passed away. Thank you. Gracias, Amalia. And Jessica Valderrama will be the evening's final reader. So hang in there. You've been a great audience. burned dancing halos into the sky. Boulders and cacti peppered the hard dirt. M mountains disrupted long stretches of land and the rare gas station. Endless blue sky drowned the thin slice of ground below it. Here no one spoke, no one sang, and no one laughed. Only the faint shadows of plants contrasted against the pale ground showed any sign of life. They jutted like glass shards in a mausoleum of sand. Years ago, I dreamt my body disintegrated into the wind, and I became part of the air. I awoke surprised to see my body sprawled out in front of me. Now here I was, surrounded by the emptiness of the desert. The more I searched for movement into the horizon, the less I saw. The sun's heat gently pinpricked my skin and nestled me into a state of comfortable blankness. I spent days sitting by the pool, staring out into the horizon, drinking cold coffee. The chirping of crickets and buzzing of mosquitoes kept me company in the mornings. We had to drive to get anywhere. No one walked or rode bicycles. I grew accustomed to the rows of neatly trimmed paper cutout houses with manicured lawns. My cousin's home did not look any different from the rest. The last time I had seen my aunt and uncle, I crawled over their torsos to play with my uncle's hair. I remembered my aunt's laughter, high and throaty, as I hesitated to crawl off them. Their hair was still black and they did not have lines on their face. My aunt's hands were smooth and her eyes shone with optimism. I saw my grandmother for the first time in decades that summer too. She was, she was smaller than I remembered. The lines around her eyes gently curved inward and her hair shimmered with strands of silver in the sun. Her eyes were downcast and she did not laugh or speak loudly. Before leaving home, I reached past her hips and now I saw above her head. She served me coffee in the morning with milk and bread and there was always a vase of tulips at the center of the kitchen table. She wore flowery aprons and tied her hair in a loose bun. Her twin sister had visited us before dying one year later. My grandmother had carefully described the failure of her organs and bodily functions over the period of three months. First one kidney went, followed by the collapse of her lungs and finally her heart. One by one, each system in the body turned the lights out. She was buried quickly the following evening and then we heard no more of her. 
What kills people is not death, it is a forgetting of them. We no longer spoke of my godmother the way we no longer spoke of her first home. That evening, my grandmother handed me a pair of, of scissors and asked me to cut the strings at the edge of her red shirt. I saw the top of her shoulders and remembered sitting in the kitchen watching her prepare dinner and her holding my hand in the mornings on the way to school. I took the scissors from her hand and pulled the top of her shirt backwards and quickly cut both strings. I pulled the strings gently from their seams and handed them back to her. I recognized the varied rhythm of her voice and the curve of her back when she leaned forward to talk. She still spoke to me the way she spoke to me when I spilled coffee on the carpet or forgot to put my toys away. Here she was, sitting next to me again and having dinner, as if we had not been separated by hundreds of miles of lands and innumerable hours. I could not believe this moment was happening. She came here searching for the chatty child to find a strange adult. I was much like my grandmother without realizing it, taciturn and withdrawn. At first, the border between my immediate family in America and the rest of my family in Mexico was, was mitigated by calls, which became fewer and shorter throughout the years. The border grew wider and thicker until it completely filled the space between us. There were barriers time could not cross, and the border was one of them. I turned to my grandmother and did not know what to say. For years, I had imagined talking to her and seeing her again. She did not understand English, and I had to speak in Spanish to her. She looked back at me, her eyes penetrating my skin, wanting to speak and having nothing to say in return. There was no catching up on 20 years of lost time. We could only savor what was left the awareness of the significance of each other's presence. We sat side by side, observing everyone in the room. Time had plowed, sown, and grown the present immu immutable silence between us. I asked if she wanted me to throw out the strings of her blouse, and she replied with a curt, polite, no. Thank you so much. That concludes tonight's reading uh, for Pen World Voices Open Secrets. This is, uh, these are the students from the Dreaming Out Loud program uh, that uh, were, we worked with them in four different boroughs and four different locations. There was three teachers. It was just so I want you to, all of you to know um, that you've all taught me so much. Um, when I sit with young people, I, I, it's, I, I, it's, it tends to be a two-way street. I work as a creative writing instructor with, with young people, freelance. Um, and it winds up being as much as a learning experience as, as, as teaching. So I'm Charlie Vasquez. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram. A round of applause for them, please. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful evening.